The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. this week, and um, I think it's going to be a very important week, and uh, before we get to the uh, topic that I've been assigned, which is the place of the past in biblical counseling, or the problem of the past in biblical counseling, uh, I'd like to um, explain what we're trying to do this entire week, not just my little section, but uh, the entire week. And uh, maybe I could uh, introduce what's uh, happening this week by um, talking about a favorite subject of mine, which is uh, painful to talk about now, and uh, that is uh, the New York sports scene. Uh, those of you who have been at uh, past June Institutes know that I am an old line New York sports fan, having grown up in northern New Jersey. And uh, when I say old line, I mean the old teams, the uh, Rangers, the Knicks, the Giants. And um, because I was always a Brooklyn Dodger fan, uh, my hatred for the Yankees runs so deep uh, that I can't root for them, so I'm a Mets fan. And um, those of you who uh, have been following the New York sports scene uh, know that this is a very painful, painful period of time. I thought maybe the Knicks would do something to redeem us, but uh, I have discovered there is only one redeemer, and uh, the Knicks have uh, failed. So uh, when I talk about New York sports, I've got to go back a couple of years to uh, when the Giants won the Super Bowl. Remember that? Yeah. A couple of years ago, Giants won the Super Bowl. And um, you might remember, of course, most of you don't, and most of you couldn't care less. But at any rate, um, uh, the Giants had what was called a ball control team. Now, uh, what that means is you try to hold on to the ball as long as you can. Uh, you get a, a bunch of big old linemen who can uh, push the other team around. Uh, you get solid ball carriers who uh, will get you three, four yards a pop, but they're never going to break away for a long touchdown. Uh, you get some um, uh, receivers who aren't very speedy, but they'll get seven, eight yards for you, and they've got good hands. They'll hold on to the ball. And the idea is that you march the length of the field in uh, 13, 14, 15 plays, and maybe you keep the ball for 10, 11 minutes. And uh, that means the other team doesn't get the ball so often. And uh, you might end up uh, having the ball 15 times longer, 15 minutes longer than the other team. And uh, the final score is probably going to be something like 13 to 10. Uh, but you win. You win, and, and the Giants did. Now, if you're a Buffalo Bills fan, you'll look at that and you'll say, that's not football. That's dull. That's chess. <clears throat> I mean, football is supposed to be exciting. Uh, so what you do is you have a no-huddle offense. You uh, call the plays at the line, and you, uh, you run two, three, four plays in the time that it would take another team to run one or two plays. And you get a bunch of speedy receivers who will run downfield and catch long passes. And uh, you'll get a bunch of speedy running backs who uh, will be able to break away for uh, long runs and touchdowns. And it's an exciting game. And uh, you don't hold on to the ball much, but you score a lot. And usually the last team that scores wins. So uh, the final score for a Buffalo Bills game might be something like 35 to 30. That's exciting. Now, a giant fan would look at that and say, that's not football. That's, uh, that's sandlot stuff. That's pickup stuff. That's what you used to do in, uh, in grade school. That's not football. Now, here you got two teams playing football. And the fans of one says, that's not football. 
and the fans of the other says, that's not football. Now, you probably wonder where in the world this thing is going. Uh, so, so hang in there. Um, remember, I'm a Giants fan. This is ball control. We come in it slowly. Um, well, the point is, it is football. Uh, what the Giants play and what the Bills play is football. Uh, until somebody comes in with a bat and tries to swing at the ball, it's football. Uh, until somebody picks up the ball and tries to dribble it down the field, it's football. So long as you play within certain rules and a certain regulated field, it's football. You may play the game differently. You may play it wildly differently. But it's still Football. Got that? Okay. Now, 25 years of biblical counseling. And some of us who call ourselves biblical counselors play the game differently. One of the signs that the movement called biblical counseling has been a success is that we are now fighting with one another. <laughs> a long time ago, when this whole thing started, anybody who opened the Bible was biblical, because back then nobody bothered to take the Bible seriously in counseling. Uh, but now we have a lot of people who want to take the Bible seriously, but they play the game differently. Some of us will take time with a counselee exploring his past. Others of us will say the past is unimportant. All you have to do is deal with the present. Find out what's going on in the present. Find sinful behavioral patterns. Bring change to bear. That's playing the game differently. Some of us who call ourselves biblical will spend a lot of time trying to understand what the other person is feeling. Others will say feelings aren't important. The Bible talks about thoughts and ways or actions. So let's deal with what a person is thinking. Let's deal with what he's doing. That's how change comes about. Don't play with feelings. We're playing the game differently. Some of us will be concerned about motivation. Why is it that some people sin one way and other people sin another way? You can say sin is the problem, but how come we all sin differently? And others will say that doesn't matter. You can't know what's going on inside a person's head or inside a person's heart. Don't worry about motives. Just go after what you see and try to bring change there. We play the game differently. And what happens is, as we uh, define what we mean by being biblical in our counseling, some of us are saying, I'm more biblical than you are. Now, you call yourself biblical, but you're not. You're really not. And a whole lot of differences have begun to emerge in this thing that we call biblical counseling. But what does it mean to be biblical? What do we have to adhere to in order to deserve the title biblical? The purpose of this conference this week is to begin to take a stab at the answer to that question. What is the irreducible minimum that a person must adhere to in order to deserve the title biblical? And we've isolated certain areas that are problem areas today. And this is how the, the, the church establishes confessions. They look at problems, they look at false teaching, they look at heretic, uh, uh, heresy, and they search the scripture to find answers to those things. And we're bombarded with a whole host of problems today that we have to answer, that we have to come up with a biblical position on. 
And uh, some of those things are the place of the past in counseling. Some of them are a pain and the role it plays in helping a person change. And if you've read any of the uh, popular Christian literature on counseling, you know how big a problem that is. Uh, what are the place of feelings? Uh, why is it that people don't all sin the same? How do we get into the question of motivation? What we've done is isolate some, some, some key areas, and we're saying, this is what we believe you have to adhere to in that area if you're going to claim the title biblical. What we're trying to do is come up with a confession of faith. Uh, now, now, some of you come from churches that don't have confessions of faith. Uh, I happen to come from a tradition that, that does. Uh, we have the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was written a long, 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 long time ago uh, in order to define what uh, uh, we believe uh, about certain areas of the Christian life. Now, some of you say, no, we don't have that. Uh, the only creed we have is the Bible. Uh, but you have, even though you don't have it written down, you have tucked inside your head what that means. Uh, you believe certain things about Jesus Christ. Uh, you believe certain things about his death on the cross. You believe certain things about the resurrection. And uh, that may all be understood, but it's there. And uh, that's why you have a church or why you have a community of believers. Uh, so we all have confessions of faith. What we want to begin to do, and I believe that this will be a process that will take years and years and years to refine. What we want to begin to do is come up with a confession of faith for those who claim to be biblical counselors. Just what must they believe about all of these critical areas in order to deserve the title biblical. Uh, now, let me use one uh, other analogy, and then uh, I'll, uh, I'll get on with it. Um, we have lots of differences in this room. Um, some of us, uh, when we baptize, get good and wet. Um, others of us just kind of get sprinkled on. Uh, some of us, when we worship, get excited. Say all kinds of strange things. Others of us wouldn't get caught smiling in church. Uh, some of us know for certainty that uh, Jesus is coming in 36 days. <laughs> Others of us say, ah, you can't possibly know, and when he comes, that's going to be it anyway. Forget this stuff about Israel and a thousand years and, and all of that nonsense. Okay? We have differences, and, and pretty sizable differences. I mean, those are significant differences. I, I, I'm saying them in kind of a, uh, a tongue-in-cheek way, but those are serious differences. Those are differences of faith. They're differences in the way we interpret the scripture. But chances are, even though we have those differences, most of us in this room would acknowledge that uh, we're all believers. Why is that? Because even though we have differences, we have commonalities that are stronger. We believe in the authority of the word of God. We believe it is the infallible rule of faith and life, inspired of God. We believe that Jesus Christ is born of a virgin, fully God, fully human. We believe that his death on the cross is penal and substitutionary, that he bore the sins of his people in order that they might be saved. We believe in the physical, literal, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe in the ministry of the Holy Spirit in his church. We believe that Jesus at the right hand of God the Father will come again. Now, we may have minor differences about certain points in each of those areas, but we hold all of those things in common. And because we hold all of those things in common, we know that we will fellowship together in heaven. Now, if I can just push that analogy into the area of biblical counseling, what are those fundamental things that we must believe in order to have fellowship together as biblical counselors? 
for doing the dangerous, dangerous job of drawing circles, for drawing lines. Uh, we're saying anybody within that circle is biblical. Anybody outside that circle is not. That's a tough thing to do. And, and, and there are dangers. Some of us want to push the circles real wide. And that means you're tending towards liberalism. Others of us want to narrow the circles as, as tightly as we can, which means you're pushing towards the cults. What we want to do is be biblical. We want to search the scripture and find some commonality in each of these areas. A dangerous thing to do, I believe an essential thing to do, and if we're going to do that, we have to do it in complete dependence upon the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And so, uh, although Tony has led us in prayer already, I'd like us to pray again and ask that God would give us that wisdom and, and give us here this week a, uh, a, a fellowship, a community of learning so that we can learn from one another and stimulate one another onto good works. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we rejoice that your word is true. And we rejoice, Father, that your word is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. We thank you, Father, that your spirit, the spirit of the living, risen Christ, is at work in us uniting us together into one body, one fellowship, but also opening our eyes that we might behold the things of the Lord, illumining us that we might understand your word. Father, we want to serve you, and we want to be faithful to you. And we ask that together, in a community of love, in a community of humility, in a willingness to serve one another, you will help us to learn exactly what the Bible does say about the essentials of a ministry that's truly, truly of God. Lord, we commit these lectures, we commit each one of ourselves to you, Father. We pray that we might know fullness of your presence and your power in our midst this week. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's take out the um, <clears throat> outline uh, related to uh, the problem of the past in counseling. And um, I apologize for this outline. I, um, I, I only submit this because uh, Jane Clark threatened me if I didn't have something ready to put in a packet. And uh, I think the only person who doesn't have an outline is Jay, and uh, that's because he's in South Carolina, and um, he hasn't yet experienced the wrath of Jane Clark. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> uh, I've had to put something together, so uh, what you have here is kind of a, a, a sketchy um, outline of some of the things that we'll be talking about as we deal with the problem of the past. Uh, but if you look at this... Uh, a series of uh, cartoons and a quote. This will get us started. Um, <clears throat> anybody that starts out talking about the giants and uh, cartoons can't take himself too seriously. So, uh, but but look at this. Uh, you know, I, I put these together in this form because it, uh, it encapsulates uh, how people think today. Uh, there you've got the uh, uh, first annual convention of the adult children of normal parents. And uh, there are only two people there. Uh, many won't show up for that one. Okay. Now, now, you know that all the literature about dysfunctional families uh, will claim that as, uh, as high as 96% of all families in America are dysfunctional. They're wrong. 100% of all families in America are dysfunctional. Uh, because 100% uh, of all families are made up of sinners. And I'm, just, I'm not just talking about the families you grew up in. I'm talking about your family right now. Your kids are growing up in dysfunctional families. <laughs> your kids are uh, growing up and being raised by sinful parents. Parents saved by grace, praise God, but sinners nonetheless. 
And uh, one way or another, that sin is going to come in. And listen, no matter what you do, now this may be the cynic in me speaking, uh, your kids are going to find something to complain about. Uh, my, my wife and I regularly uh, will turn to one another and say, oops, uh, she's going to talk to her counselor someday about that. <clears throat> I mean, that's just the way it is, you know. Uh, part of sin is always trying to find somebody else to blame. And uh, so we're sinners. We give them lots of things to, uh, to find fault with. And because they're sinners, they, they are all too willing to uh, accept. Uh, the fault that we are uh, providing for them. So there you got, you know, everybody has a dysfunctional family. All of us come from rotten families. And then you move down to the next uh, um, uh, cartoon, and, and what that says is we're all uh, victims. And um, I, I, somebody gave me this one. I'm not into Calvin and Hobbes. I don't know who is who. Who's Calvin, who's Hobbes? Anybody know? Hobbes is the tiger? You got that? Now, I, I also think, correct me if I'm wrong, um, Hobbes is a make-believe tiger? Yeah. All right, he, he, all right, all right, good. He's, stuffed, he's a stuffed tiger, but he really doesn't talk, right? I mean, he talks and walks only in Calvin's imagination. Okay. See, see what a rich imagination Calvinists have, right. Um, <coughs> so, uh, so I said, we got differences here, right? Uh, Right, right. Wesley had no imagination at all, only Calvin. Uh, <laughs> all right. <clears throat> any rate, here's Calvin. Nothing I do is my fault. My family is dysfunctional. My parents won't empower me. Consequently, I'm not self-actualized. My behavior is addictive, functioning in a disease process of toxic codependency. I need holistic healing and wellness before I'll accept any responsibility for my actions. Hobbes, one of us needs to stick his head in a bucket of ice water. I love the culture of victimhood. Okay, that's what happens. Yeah? You, all, you all come from dysfunctional families. You all come from families and, and parents and sisters and, and, and teachers and what have you who are not perfect. And uh, what happens in our culture right now, we'll talk a little bit more about this in a, in a bit, is that, uh, well, that's why I'm messed up now. That's why I'm all messed up today because I had all of these people uh, who weren't uh, perfect. And then we move down to this last thing. I think this is a delicious quote from uh, J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. Um, Today, vast stress is laid on the thought that God is personal, but this truth is so stated as to leave the impression that God is a person of the same sort as we are, weak, inadequate, ineffective, and a little pathetic. Isn't that a great quote? Now, now why did I include that here? Because God gets sucked into our way of looking at things. Okay. Now, if, if, if we come from messed up families and we believe, therefore, we are victims, then somehow we suck God into that way of looking at things. And we say, God, you mustn't be great shakes either. In fact, where were you when all this rotten stuff was happening to me? If you're God, you could have done something about it. You didn't do something about it. What's the matter with you? You must be as weak and as powerless and as ineffective as I am. But, you know, you're something, uh, so I'll call out to you. Now, now here's a real problem. Uh, when you move from your experience to God, you're always going to mess up God. Now, I'm not saying that we don't take our experiences to God. That's not what I mean. That's not what I mean. Please don't accuse me of saying that. Of course you take your experiences to God. Anybody that reads the Bible even casually knows that you bring your experiences to God. But when you see God only through those experiences, you mess God up. The Bible says we've got to turn this upside down. You don't start from our experiences and work up to God. You start from God and work down to our experiences. You've got to define what God is and then bring that to bear on what's happening in our lives. And, of course, the whole question of integration uh, uh, gets plugged in there uh, because what happens in so many circles, and this isn't my topic, this is Jay's topic this week, uh, is uh, you, you start with uh, your experience, you start with messed up psychology, and then you go to the Bible and try to find something there to prove what you uh, 
uh, you've already believed is, uh, is true. All right, let's turn the page. Um, what's the problem? We're talking about counseling and the problem of the past. Well, the problem is multidimensional. Any of us who does counseling uh, knows that uh, we encounter the counselee's past, and uh, we encounter our own pasts as well. What do we do with those? Um, let me give you a, a couple of examples. And uh, although I'm flattening these out so um, that uh, you won't be able to acknowledge the person, uh, each of these examples is true and current. Um, here's a, um, a, a young woman in her uh, late 20s, been married uh, a couple of years, the marriage isn't working. Um, she's a Christian, her husband claims to be a Christian, husband's been involved in the counseling. Uh, she's willing to change, he isn't. Uh, she's really struggling to be a First Peter 3 kind of wife. She wants to minister to her husband. Uh, the husband is um, a driven type. Um, he uh, kind of runs roughshod over people. Uh, isn't very tuned in to... Uh, uh, how he's uh, affecting people. He isn't very sympathetic, isn't a very good listener. Uh, has his agenda pretty well laid out, and, uh, and boy, he makes sure that his agenda is, is realized. And um, <clears throat> it, it's, it's pretty slow getting him to recognize this. But here's this, this woman uh, who, who, who has to live with this husband. She wants to minister to him, wants to be a First Peter 3 kind of wife. And um, she's really open. Uh, but she's having a real tough time, real tough time handling this. Um, about the uh, third or fourth session, she tells you something. Um, she says um, when she was a um, roughly late elementary uh, through junior high school uh, age, uh, her older brother uh, abused her sexually. Um, not, uh, not to the point of intercourse, but uh, he would come into her room and uh, 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 fondle her and uh, make her satisfy him. She describes her brother and uh, says her brother is um, a very insensitive person. He uses people, runs roughshod over people. He's driven and has made a lot of enemies. And a light goes on in your head. That's what her husband is like. And you ask yourself the question, is there some kind of connection between that experience with her brother and the man she's married? Now, I, you have to ask the question. I mean, it's an interesting question. Uh, I'm not saying what the answer is, but uh, there it is. What do you do with it? There's uh, a bit of information from the past that you have to make a decision on. Is it important? Is it not important? Is it something to deal with or not? Another example. <clears throat> um, here's a, um, a woman whose uh, husband has uh, been guilty of adultery. And uh, she's a Christian and he's a Christian uh, he has repented. Uh, this woman is, uh, is an articulate Christian. And she knows what the Bible says, and you go through it with her about forgiveness. How uh, forgiveness means, and, and you remember that, uh, uh, that the three-part outline that Jay unfolds in uh, the Christian Counselor's Manual. Forgiveness is a promise, a promise that you'll never bring it up to the other person, a promise that you'll never bring it up to anyone else, a promise you'll never bring it up to yourself. And she knows all that, and she buys all that, but she keeps bringing it up. And uh, uh, she'll do it in the sessions. And, and she does it with a lot of uh, uh, vigor, uh, a lot of uh, enthusiasm. And you wonder, you know, why? She knows better. In every other area of her life, she seems to be a, a sincere and godly Christian. Why does she have such a hard time letting this go? Now, maybe she just needs more teaching. Maybe she just needs more discipline. Maybe she just needs more structure. But the counselor asks the question, is something else going on? 
is there something about this experience with her husband that rings other bells? Could it be that there are things in her past, maybe things not dealt with, that this experience with her husband has unearthed? What do you do with that? last example. Uh, here's a, uh, a woman and she has a flashback. Uh, you've uh, been counseling her because she has uh, anxiety about uh, lots of things in her life. Uh, and in the course of the counseling, uh, she says, I had this very frightening flashback, this, uh, uh, this insertion of memory about a uh, relative raping me when I was four years old. What do you do with that? Uh, is there such a thing as a repressed memory? Uh, is it possible that uh, her anxiety is somehow tied in to that experience, if that experience even happened? What do you do with flashbacks like that? Well, those are some of the questions that will uh, present themselves if you do any counseling at all. And uh, I'm sure that everyone in this room uh, has been confronted with questions like that. So the problem of the past in counseling is just that. It's a counseling problem. And uh, we better have pretty clearly set what we're going to do with it. And uh, as we go on, I'll present some, uh, uh, some ways that I deal with those uh, uh, issues. But secondly, it's a cultural problem. Um, it's a uh, popular cultural phenomenon. People are looking to their pasts to explain their presence. Now, I've brought along some quotes, and, uh, and, and some of these are really great, so uh, just, just bear with me. Uh, Charles Sykes, uh, in an editorial in the New York Times, um, last November, just before the election, uh, wrote uh, this editorial. He called it, I Hear America Whining. And uh, this was just before the presidential election, and he said, you know, it really doesn't matter who gets elected, because uh, whoever is president, he has to be president over a population that doesn't want to take responsibility for itself. Uh, all it wants to do is whine. It wants to complain. And he has some uh, interesting examples here. Um, he talks about this man who was in a refrigerator race. Now, I don't know what a refrigerator race is. I, I imagine that it's not refrigerators racing each other. I suspect that what it is is a bunch of uh, uh, Englishmen <clears throat> uh, who strap refrigerators to their backs and, uh, and race each other. Now, Americans wouldn't do that, but uh, English probably would. Um, now, I suppose that what it, that, uh, that's what it is. But at any rate, this, uh, this man was in a refrigerator race, and he hurt his back. Now, that's pretty understandable, isn't it? But I guess it never occurred to him that that activity might hurt his back. So he sued the manufacturer of the refrigerator. And he said, you didn't give me sufficient warning. You should have told me that if I put that thing in my back, I might hurt myself. Because you didn't, he sued. Now, now Sykes doesn't tell us if he won that one or not. But uh, he does tell us about a couple that uh, were won. Uh, here's an FBI agent who embezzles $2,000 from the government. Goes to Atlantic City, gambles it, loses it all. The FBI finds out that he embezzled the money. They fire him. He sues. He says... You can't fire me. I have an illness. I am addicted to gambling. You can't fire me for a medical handicap. And he won. Got his job back. Here's a teacher <clears throat> who uh, got fired because she was constantly late for class. She sued and said, I am a victim of, quote, Compulsive lateness syndrome, end quote. <laughs> uh, 
And, uh, right, 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 she's a Baptist, right. <laughs> and, uh, and she won. That's an illness. And, uh, and she got her job back. Isn't that silly? I mean, it's silly, but it's happening. It's happening out there. We are a, a, a culture of victims. Everything is somebody else's fault. And it goes back uh, to our past. Now, brought along another article. This was in the Los Angeles time. And uh, it was written by a woman named Elizabeth Merrin. And uh, she entitles this one, America, Land of the Dysfunctional, Home of the Codependent. Let me just tell you about Nancy. Let me just read what she says. Nancy was 10 minutes into her weekly codependency group before she realized she was at the wrong meeting. Instead of a group for people with eating disorders, Nancy was surrounded by adults who were habitually messy. I got there late, and evidently they had changed rooms, she said. What was upsetting was that there were several other people from my eating group, but they hadn't noticed either, <laughs> because the vocabulary was the same. Now, you can be a victim of anything. Okay? Uh, you, you can uh, be a victim of an eating disorder. You can be a, a victim of a, of a messy disorder. Now, my daughters have that problem. And, um, man, I tell you, I wouldn't mind getting a support group if it would get them to clean up their rooms. But, um, you know, the next time your husband complains, wives, uh, that you spend too much time shopping, say, shut up. I have a compulsive shopping disorder. Hey, right, so so you need more money so you can shop some more. Okay. Now, um, <clears throat> there you got it, just enough to, uh, to give you the flavor. Uh, but uh, moving on from that to um, something a little bit more uh, serious is this whole question of uh, childhood abuse, sexual and physical abuse, uh, which has become a fad in, uh, in our... Uh, in our culture. Let me ask you some questions. <clears throat> Do you feel that you are sometimes bad and have something to be ashamed of? Question. Do you feel that there's something wrong with you deep down inside that, and if people really knew you, they wouldn't like you? Do you ever think that? Do you ever feel that? Do you ever feel that you have no sense of your own interests, talents, or goals? Sometimes you're just not sure what you want to do with your life. Do you ever think that? Do you have trouble feeling motivated? Just hard to get going at times? Do you sometimes feel you have to be perfect in order to be accepted? Yeah. Well, if you've answered yes to those questions, then doubtlessly you have been sexually or physically abused as a child. Uh, those are just some of the questions and the symptoms that are used in the book, A Courage to Heal, in order to establish some kind of uh, childhood abuse. You want to know what another one of the symptoms is? If you think before you speak, chances are you had some kind of bad experience. Now, that may be true. Hey, I mean, that may be true. There are lots of people who feel ashamed, and they feel depressed, and they feel unmotivated. They feel like they're loose ends. They don't know what they're going to do with their lives. Uh, they, they feel like if people really knew them, they, they wouldn't be accepted, and they feel like they've got to really perform in order to be accepted. And those people have had bad experiences that, that may have amplified those thoughts and those conclusions. But the fact is, every one of us, at one time or another, has thought those things and felt those things. And I'm reasonably sure that not all of us have been abused. Let me give you some quotes. <clears throat> this is from the abuse literature. If you doubt you were abused, 
minimize the abuse or think maybe it's in my imagination these are the symptoms of post-incest syndrome. Another quote, if you are unable to remember any specific instances but still have a feeling that something abusive happened to you, it probably did. If you think you were abused and your life shows the symptoms, then you were. But of course, those symptoms are so general as we've already seen, they can apply to anyone. Another quote, when survivors cannot remember their childhood or have very fuzzy memories, incest must always be considered a possibility. And a last one, if you have any suspicion at all, if you have any memory, no matter how vague, it probably really happened. It is far more likely that you are blocking the memories, denying it happened. You catch the catch-22 thing there? You know, uh, if it didn't happen, you deny it. But if you deny it, that means it happened. Got that? Now, uh, Carol Travis, who, uh, who uh, put these quotes together, and she's a, uh, a, a research uh, psychologist in Massachusetts, uh, she concludes with this quote, and if a woman suspects that she has been abducted by UFOs, that the FBI is bugging her socks, or that a satanic cult forced her to bear a child that was half human and half dog, she must likewise assume that it probably really happened. Uh, what's happening is uh, abuse has become so faddish, abuse has become so popular, it's caught on with the uh, uh, TV talk shows, and you get Latoya Jackson, and you get uh, Roseanne Barr telling us that uh, they can remember, or, or at least Roseanne Barr says, she can remember abuse instances uh, when before she was even one year old. It's pretty hard for most people to remember anything before one year old, but she can remember being sexually abused before one year old. And, uh, and uh, you know, wh what can you do? Uh, everybody is abused. It's faddish. And what's happening with the literature is and what's happening with a lot of counselors of abuse victims is they're being coached into remembering things that probably never happened. Now, I think that's a tragedy. Uh, I, I think it's a tragedy, not only because it's blaming people for things that they may never have done, and I'll say something about that in just a moment, but when everything is abuse, nothing is abuse. It trivializes it. If, if, if a person is a victim, if, if a person comes from a dysfunctional family because his father didn't go to his Little League baseball games, and he's as much a victim as a uh, seven-year-old girl, and this is a true story, who's being treated for gonorrhea in the throat because she was sexually molested. Now, if you take the abuse of not having a father go to your Little League game, and you put it on a par of victimization with this woman, who, or this child who has that kind of sexual molestation, that what you end up doing is trivializing this. It becomes unimportant. It becomes insignificant. If everything is abuse, then nothing is abuse. And the sad thing about uh, uh, the abuse phenomenon and that in its urgency and in its zeal to deal with very real problem in many, many homes, it has uh, undermined its credibility by seeing abuse everywhere. So we are confronted with this thing uh, called the abuse phenomenon. Uh, just to, and I've only got a few minutes here and I have to end, uh, and I want to get through this first page. Um, there is uh, an organization that has been established called um, uh, the False Memory Syndrome Foundation. And um, 
What this is, is a, a, a group of people, uh, psychologists and attorneys among others, who are alarmed by these uh, accusations of uh, childhood abuse, these, uh, these long buried memories that are suddenly uh, resurrected. And uh, accusations are brought against the parents. I mean, here's Roseanne Barr for uh, 30 or more years, never saying a thing, and then sudden, suddenly she accuses her parents, her father, of abusing her sexually. And they stand accused. What do they do? What, what are their resources? And uh, what's happened is a bunch of, um, of uh, mental health workers and lawyers have gotten together to form a, a defense fund for those people who are falsely accused. And uh, they're spearheading research into uh, how memory really works. We'll say a little bit about that uh, uh, as we go on. Now, I'm going to give you their address. Um, I should have had this written down, but um, I neglected to do it. If you want to get their literature, uh, one of the things they'll send you is uh, this magazine that is a compilation of uh, many, many articles by different people dealing with this uh, uh, issue of false memory of, uh, of abuse. But uh, you can write them. Here's the address. False Memory Syndrome Foundation, FMS Foundation. 3401 Market Street. 3401 Market Street. Suite 130. Suite 130. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. 3401 Market Street, Suite 130, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19104. 19104. Now, um, <clears throat> let's move on. It's a, it's a counseling problem. It's a cultural problem. It's a um, psychotherapeutic problem. And what I mean by that is um, th this stuff with... Um, um, uh, codependency and dysfunctional families probably comes under the heading of pop psychology. It's, uh, it's fattish stuff. It's the kind of stuff that sells books. Uh, but when you look at uh, the, the more responsible um, representatives of this thing called uh, psychotherapy, even there in, in long standing, not the popular popular fattish uh, elements, but in the, in, in the long-standing and uh, respected tenets of psychotherapy, you have problems. And uh, I've, I've listed just uh, a, a few of them here. Uh, you have Freud's hydraulic view of the person. Now, what do I mean by the hydraulic view of the person? Uh, that means that the person is a closed container, and, and it's sort of like a hydraulic jack. Uh, some of you uh, who, who uh, don't relate to my Giants illustrations probably won't understand this one either. But, um, uh, you know, you have a, a jack, a hydraulic jack, and what you have is this closed metal cylinder, and it's got fluid inside. It's got liquid inside, uh, hydraulic fluid. And uh, you push down the plunger here, and that puts pressure on that fluid and makes the piston go up. You got this fluid, closed container. When you put pressure on one part, it's got to come out on another part, and it's got enough force to uh, raise a car. A little jack like that with hydraulic fluid can raise a car. Uh, that's how Freud and uh, a lot of others in the psychoanalytic tradition view people. Uh, they are closed containers, and they've got not fluid, but they've got energy. They've got emotional energy. They've got this drive within them. Freud talked about the drive for pleasure. And that energy is never lost. Just like the hydraulic fluid can't slip, slip outside of this or, or seep outside of this closed container, that energy in the person can never be lost. And so if, uh, if somebody acts upon that person, the energy just gets shifted around and comes out here. And uh, whatever happens here is somehow a result of that person pushing the wrong buttons here which makes the person a victim. It makes him a victim of the pressures that other people put on him. This, in a, in a very quick way, in a very crude way, is, uh, is Freudian determinism. Uh, we're this closed unit of energy. People push on that energy, and it has to come out. We're determined. Can't do anything about it. 
Uh, just like that jack, when I push the handle, can't say, no, I'm not going to raise a piston today. It just happens. It's got to happen. Uh, and then you've got this idea of the unconscious. Uh, now, <clears throat> uh, by the unconscious, we're not talking about things we can't remember. There are lots of things we can't remember. Uh, but if I think about it a little bit, I can bring it into memory. There are lots of things that we do of which we're not aware okay, at the time we're doing them. But uh, the unconscious, as it is usually defined in uh, the psychoanalytic literature, is, uh, is not something only that we're not aware of. It's this huge area, this huge primordial swamp of, uh, of uh, impenetrable mess that uh, influences all the things we do. And, and it's beyond awareness. It's beyond detection except in the hands of a very skillful analyst uh, who will be able to uh, probe and uncover the things that are down there. Now, uh, it's okay to use the word unconscious, I believe, if you mean uh, those things that we do that we're not immediately aware of. But when you talk about this primordial swamp, this, this huge thing that's beyond our detection, that shapes everything that we do, I'm not sure there's any biblical support for that. And then lastly, this idea of catharsis, which is um, if I've got this energy inside and it isn't lost, that means uh, if I was angry at my parents when I was four years old, that anger is still inside me. It's like that hydraulic jack again. The fluid never seeps out. And if I was angry when I was four years old, I'm still angry. It comes out different ways. The only way I can deal with that when I'm 34 is to express the anger that I should have expressed when I was four but didn't. And so the whole role of counseling is to get people to express themselves. And usually it means they get to express their angry, aggressive feelings. That's catharsis, to get out those feelings that, uh, uh, that were never uh, uh, expressed. Uh, and again, we don't have time to get into that, but that's bogus. Uh, uh, all the research, quite apart from what the Bible says, shows that uh, uh, those kinds of feelings are not, uh, uh, you can't demonstrate that they uh, are, are still present. And the one thing the research does demonstrate is that people who express lots of anger and aggression just get more angry and more aggressive. It doesn't do anything to uh, lessen the anger. So uh, those are some of the psychotherapeutic problems we've got to deal with. Counseling problems, cultural problems, psychotherapeutic problems. We'll move on this afternoon and do a quick survey of uh, what the Bible says about the past. Thank you.